Welcome to Regenerative Farmers of America podcast. Hello and welcome. We are so excited to have you guys here today. I want to just jump in. Tell us the tale. How did it get started? How did you guys meet? And why did you decide to jump into farming? Um. So yeah, uh, it's good to be here. It is good to be here. We're thank you for having us. Um. So first, uh, I met Mitch through a, the other co-founder who's not here. His name's James. Um. Through work, and uh, Mitch actually has more more of an interesting tale about it because he and uh, our other business partner kind of were at odds with each other and they grew up with each other. So I'll let Mitch tell that story. Actually, <laughs> you want me to start there? Yeah. So here, so. Essentially, I, I have 10 years in tech. I was a product development person. I always had an underlying sort of draw towards social issues, but I also was trying to provide income for my family. And so I was part of a tech company that had a good social issue focus at the time. But um, one of my ways of being socially engaged was by being a vegetarian and not eating meat because meat was killing the planet. That was the narrative. That was That was my truth at the time. So uh, my neighbor and best friend, James Gilson, growing up, we happened to both be outside our parents' house. And he yelled at me that he had some fresh elk he had hunted. And if I wanted elk, I said, no, I'm a vegetarian. He said, why? I said, because I'm saving the planet, bro. And he said, well, no, man, it's not the cow, it's the how. And I was like, that's a cool saying. But what he, and he's like, I'm like, no, I'm right. Let me send you this video. I've got a video, man. And he's like, no, I've got a video. So we sent each other videos. Needless to say, his video won out. Just for people who want to know what those videos were, I think I can't even remember exactly. My video, I think, was a Vox Media video talking about the different emissions of different animals, like a whole spectrum of like 20 different uh, livestock animals or any kind of protein meat, actually. And so um, the video he sent me was the Alan Savory TED Talk on desertification. Totally and just got I my think mind. That's everybody's story, right? I saw Alan Savory's TED Talk and my world became different after that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A little bit. Like, well, this guy killed a lot of elephants and he's still making up for it. And he is, he is dead set on his whole life being committed to this. So that's how James got me thinking different about regenerative agriculture. I hadn't heard of that word before. And he had just gotten on this kick of Alan Savory and the Savory Institute. And like, he was sending me links every day and like, friends are great, but sometimes they're just overbearing. <laughs> So then I'll hand it off to yeah. you. McKinley can tell the other half. Yeah. So uh, I met James. Um, I've been in re- my family's been in real estate for a long time. So we were selling a piece of property, and James had come to look at it. And he was talking about homesteading. And uh, my I grew up. My dad was a back in the day it was called holistic resource management. Um, he he started doing seminars in the early '90s about this kind of grazing, and eventually turned into holistic management international and Savory Institute and uh, he was a certified educator that way. And I watched that Ted talk when I was like 23. I was like, Oh, my life's, I didn't realize how impactful what my dad was doing growing up was like, it just like, that's just what people do. And, um, so that changed my life. And I got, I'm an accredited professional at the Savory Institute and we're involved with the soil food web school with Dr. Elaine Ingham as well. And, uh, met James just showing a piece of property and, uh, we, hit it off huge with that and then james introduced me to mitch and mitch was i think a little bit disenchanted with the the tech (laughs) world and uh we just dove headfirst into getting into agriculture so we made an order for 150 chicks and we bought uh we were in the worst drought utah's ever had um that year so we were really nervous to buy a lot of cattle just because we didn't know if we'd be able to feed them (laughs) 
and the cost of hay had gone up like I think 300% or something. So we uh, decided to do it, but we, we, anyway, we bought three head, about three pair cow, uh, cattle and uh, ran it. We got a lease on 50 acres and uh, just started from there and learned what worked and what didn't very, very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So by the way, when James, through... oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say James, when James called me after that, going to look at that house, he was like, it was like his divine intervention. I think he had just seemed like an angel because he was so like, like he couldn't speak. He's like, dude, this thing just happened. And so, you know, like whatever divine intervention, like the maker's hand, it, it really felt in retrospect, especially we kind of look at each other and we're like, can you believe we didn't even know each other two years Super ago? Weird. And now like, I spend more waking hours with this dude than I do my wife. Like, <laughs> same, same. And everybody's yeah. happy about that, right? <laughs> it is. Yeah. No, I, I mean, we're very lucky to be doing this, um, especially in the location we're at, because uh, real to get a lease or do anything here is really challenging because we're kind of a high value area. So we're yeah. really, really fortunate. But so I guess we'll kind of start from the beginning. So first we got the chicks. We didn't have a brooder. We didn't know what we were doing. So that round, we put it in our other business partner, James's shed. And um, that year, June got was the highest uh, temperatures on record. Um, usually in this area, we never get above 89 degrees. We got to like 93 for a month straight. And so uh, we were really worried about temperatures. James actually handled that basically by himself. I think Mitch helped him a little bit too. Um, and then uh, we put them on pasture and uh, we used the Joel Salatin tractors. And that was an interesting experience. I'll kind of let Mitch talk about that. Um, before we go any further, any questions you have on like the origin story first or like, or yeah, just tell me the unfolding, right? Because yeah. there's a question about land acquisition and leases. So just kind of dive me oh, through the, yeah. you know, start to finish. So you've got a, a very hot shed of chicken, which at a brooder stage, not so yeah. bad, but <laughs> yeah. So for, we, we, for, we first started by just getting animals, um, which usually you want to have everything set up beforehand. So um, I got on Facebook and said does anybody have any ground to that they want to lease and uh this very kind lady said yeah i got some acres and i saw oh cool it's gonna be like five acres maybe we'll start with some sheep turned out to be a lot more than that and so it kind of changed the whole thing that way so we got the brooder we're brooding chickens and then we didn't have any the salatin tractors weren't built we we're we've always kind of been uh I don't know what the word is. Well, ready firing. <laughs> yeah, there it you is. Know, or... Flying by the seat of our pants. The, yeah, the we've got to go a, out, I mean, we should build a tractor. <laughs> that's right. It's, it's not unique to our operation. I feel like you say it more maybe as a farmer rancher, but we always just joke that our our slogans will figure it out, right. you know? And so uh, <laughs> we kind of, we had talked about chickens and maybe this is my truth and not the reality, but like, I feel like James kind of ultimately just called us and he said, I ordered 150 chickens and we're like, okay, I guess we'll figure that out. <laughs> and so I, I yeah. feel like so many of us start that way. Right. So that's yeah. a great origin story. <laughs> yeah. And he calls me, he's like, Hey, I'm at the co-op and I just got 150 chicks. Uh, McKinley's going to meet me down here. Like we hadn't even thought about waters, or heat lamps. And so like literally in the same day, these guys are trying to figure out how to like keep these little fluff balls alive. 
And so we now we have like the but now we got the forcing function. We got like okay, three weeks, and we need to get salads and tractors built. So uh, yeah. luckily, James and McKinley both had the Polyface Designs book. I call that book. It's built by um, Polyface um, Farms, but I call that book like the Legos for like a Lego book for uh, farmers and ranchers because it's so good step by step and. We built two chicken tractors, uh, pretty high lumber prices. So things were a little more expensive. Joel's a little unique with some of his supply sourcing that we can't get out in the West. But uh, we built these two tractors. We got them onto pasture and um, we moved the birds out there pretty, pretty painlessly. Honestly, we threw them in the back of the truck, put some shade cloth over them. They stayed pretty calm and chill and we got them out. Um, but then it got exciting pretty quick. Uh, McKinley, for context, maybe just to think about our partnership structure, it's, it's kind of unique. Like um, I would say predominantly most smaller farms and ranches are family, multi-generational family ranches and farms. You don't have as many newer established ranches and farms. And so McKinley lives up in the Camas Valley. So he's about a seven minute drive yeah. from the ranch. So super close. Um, I live in the Salt Lake Valley. And so that's actually a 38 minute commute for me. And James does as well. Uh, and so so there's kind of a little bit of dependency on McKinley as the primary operator for us on a daily basis. I'm up here about four times a week and James is up here uh, less frequently just with his job and he helps kind of some back office accounting and other things. But um, the, I guess my point in saying that is I'm sometimes away. I'm not the first one to the farm. And so when McKinley was the first one to the farm one day, he's like, yeah, we got a predator problem. And I didn't really like, when, whenever you hear that news secondhand, you're like, oh, that's horrible. Like sometimes you hear about pain and suffering across the world and you're like, oh, that's horrible. But if it's in your own backyard, it's different. I didn't really comprehend like what it looks like for there to be like, you know, eight murdered chickens from raccoons right. and like <laughs> the stress that was creating. Yeah, it was a, so one, a little bit of more context about our location. So we're backed up to 2.2 million acres of national forest just a little predator pressure right yeah so we, we and we're and we're in <laughs> yeah. a river bottom too so it's Oops. like that's the water source for a lot right. of creatures so <laughs> yeah and so um one thing we didn't realize is that if you don't have flat ground uh the salatin tractors aren't super functional in fact not many tractors are functional i'm uh, so glad way. you bring that up unlevel yeah. ground is a surprising barrier to chickens so yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah your only leveled ground is tilled ground primarily yeah <laughs> some yeah unfortunately <laughs> yeah. um so we learned that pretty and um and this no criticism to the master joel salatin but he recommended chicken wire just the standard cord one inch. one inch chicken wire um raccoons with their opposable thumbs can reach in there and grab chickens so uh we had to retrofit it with more weight uh with welded wire or hardware cloth and uh, we also had to create these skirts to create so they couldn't get underneath where we didn't have level ground so and there was this it's slight topography but that just slightness caused i mean you can get anything in there skunk right. raccoon and if the big fear for us which down there is a lot of riparian area is weasels um mm. i grew up my, my dad tried doing this in the early 90s and he had the same thing he lost 100 chickens and a day because of weasels or stoats what they're yeah. called around here so um yeah you so that, that's one thing we learned really really quickly is that you're there's certain contexts where chickens work and you have to be have the infrastructure to do it right so um 
So that's kind of our beginnings of the chicken story. We took that and we'll kind of jump forward in time, I guess, to now. Uh, we decided to go 100x the amount of chickens. 10. 10x. Not, not 100. Not yet. Not, not 100. Lots, lots of chickens, though, right? Lots Let's of chickens, be real. Yeah. <laughs> so we're doing 1,000 chickens now. Um, and we have chicken schooners and we have a totally set up brooder. That's the Joel Salatin on a mobile, uh, running gear wagon. And, uh, that's actually been a, probably as stressful as just 150, but it's kind of a longer period of time. Yeah. Um, I don't know. What do you think? About well, so I think to talk, like we're talking primarily about chickens right now, not the cattle, but on the chicken front, you know, I think you read these books like you can farm or whatever from Joel Salton. And the worst part about reading that book is you're no longer like ignorant. You're kind of just like hearing his words in the back of your head as you're making the wrong decisions. Like, you know, like (laughs) as you're not having your water and fence infrastructure in place before you do something, or as you're not having a brooder built before you buy the chickens, like things like that. So um, the biggest kick in the pants the brood the brooders were a little rough to build from a timing perspective because it was just tight and we felt a little stressed but the schooners were really rough we bought them from featherman equipment and bless their heart like every other freaking industry out there with supply chain issues um between that and shipping we ended up we were we knew we had chickens ordered they were going to be ready in three weeks and then we knew that we had to have that those schooners ready then well, those schooners came a week and a half late to so four and a half weeks. And then they didn't give us any instructions on how to build 2,500 pounds of steel. And so we then had about another week and a half or two weeks. And so at this point, we're talking about six week old birds that we didn't know what to do with. They were, we took them out of the brooder at about three and a half weeks. Cause we're like, this is going to turn into a really anaerobic ammonia infilled brooder environment. Luckily we had the leftover salads and tractors. So you can actually throw about 125 small birds into the salads and tractors each. And like, it, it was okay. But then at six weeks, there was that stress again, of like these birds are getting too big to be in salads. And luckily we barely got one schooner done to throw them out. We kind of relieved. We still have another schooner to build. So like, Anyway, we're probably going to way too much detail, but like, no, it, no, it, I, I love this because I feel like what you're going through is what literally every farmer goes through, right? I'm motivated. I'm excited and nothing comes in at the right time. And also like the level of, I didn't prepare. Is that my fault? Or is this just part of the process? Like, so it feels like, so at home of like, good. Yeah. Know, I don't know if it's comforting or we got to have a, <laughs> yeah, we, we need to have a big intervention is producers get her i get think her if we would straight. we still all would do it that way though like if somebody was like you really should be ahead of the schedule and you're like yeah i totally am going to do that and then you absolutely don't so i don't think we're savable um which is no, why i really not. like that you know it, it's full of errors and we deal with them anyway yeah <laughs> so. we, we figured out um so you know that the stress is i think on them if we had had the brooder ready at the beginning of the season if we had had the schooner ready at the beginning of the season the stress would have been significantly less. The benefit of what we have in infrastructure this year by far that we did not have last year. And the reason we made the move we did just to kind of like pull back from a business decision, like at the beginning of the, in March, we were talking like, how many birds do we do this year? We're trying to do planning for the year. And we said, well, we did 130. What if we did like 300? Like, well, if we did 300, we'd have to either go build a few more salads and tractors or we could go do the smaller like Siskovich tractors, but those are only like 30 birds each. So then we'd have to build like five or 10 of those. And it became this weird economies of scale game. We're like, do I really want to re- go fill feed 
and fill water on 10 different units and move those 10 individual units. That time management is tricky for us. The Salatons were too heavy. We had an intern, Maddie, who is potentially coming for the summer. We thought, you know what? She or any other dude or man, woman or man would have a hard time moving this thing on their own. And so we just looked at the math and I built a janky Excel spreadsheet with some ideas of cost. And it's pretty fun. When you change a number from 150 to 1,000, all of a sudden you start to see economies of scale and you're like, well, we could actually make better profits if we just scale it up with supposedly same amount of work. Um, long story short, it's obviously more work, but the, the saving grace is that we have water. We have permanent water infrastructure. We have the cabin we're in now is where the, the schooners are actually right behind us. We have essentially tapped into a spigot out here, culinary water that runs 800. We put it to a three quarter inch poly pipe. It runs down the whole stretch of the three and a half acre pasture. We have compression tees at every hundred feet with Poisson compression tees. And so as the schooner moves down the pasture, we just have water. We have hoses coming out of the schooners and then just tap into the different sections of that water line. If we were doing that with, when we were doing that for 130 birds, when they were eight weeks old, yeah. we were having to give them multiple five gallon buckets of water a day from the Creek, walking it over. And now we don't, we don't worry about water at all. And like, so that, that stress would have put us over the edge, I think. For sure. Um, if we didn't have water infrastructure figured out for sure. Um, anyway, we we're, were just rambling into our different areas. No, I, I love this. So I feel like you hit on like five different really, really important topics that I would love to go into. Yeah. Like one is like understanding what labor means on those different <laughs> styles of tractors, right? So, yeah. you know, you, you go on Instagram and there's some like sweet 90 pound girl and she's pulling this tractor with like hundreds of chickens. And that reality is often sometimes limited due to how much wood weighs, is it on wheels, all this good stuff. So steel or aluminum siding or whatever, all this different stuff. So I think yeah. there's the, the understanding of like, uh, you guys not being on the farm too, every single time, that's a different economies of scale. A lot of people who live there can always be there to check waters or be present. And you guys have such an interesting dynamic that you're not always there. So I'd love to kind of go in. Um, I would love to hit on the skirts that you put on the chicken tractors, how you circumvented your predator pressure and what you think is best for that. Cause that's a huge question for people. And then if you kind of want to go into like, how you made those things work and how you made those decisions about people not being there all the time. Cause I think that's so important that we all say, well, I have a full-time job. I couldn't possibly farm. Well, you guys are clearly like showing that you can make it possible. And I think that really opens doors for people. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. We hope so. Yeah. No, I mean, you can, I mean, you can have a full-time job and farm. It's just what it, it depends on what animal really. Yeah, right. um, that's really what it comes down to. Um, so I guess I'll we'll tackle your first question first about the skirts. Um, so what I did, it was it you was did it. I, I don't yeah. So what, I showed up the next day and him and his parents I think yeah, just tackled I, this. I was like, whoa, yeah, you were you were stressed. <laughs> this is a lot of work. Should I go? Yeah, no. Well, that's so, what happens when you see the bodies all over the ground. That's right? right. Like something yeah. has to happen before the sun goes down the next day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Um. So what we did is uh, I sandwiched just normal chicken wire um, between two pieces of um, one by two. It was one by it was cut. It was one by two. So we cut up a one by six into a one by two and we turned it into a one by one. 
And then uh, we sandwiched about it's a foot and a half or two feet of chicken wire. And we screwed that on to the bottom uh, rail of the Salatin tractor. And the sides were permanent, but the front had to be the front and the back. We had just you just lay it on to the bottom. Um, so basically the point was to create a barrier so an animal couldn't force itself underneath or fit fit its hand. So that chicken wire seemed to be adequate. We didn't have another predator issue again. Do you lift it like when you move it or is it enough that when yeah. you pull it doesn't move? Tell me a little it, bit. So yeah, so the sides were, so what we did is we we just put a little nail on the top of it and we would lift the skirt up and just hang it on the nail and then you would pull it. Okay, that um, makes sense. <laughs> Yeah. And then we kind of, I mean, it, there, the topography got severe enough where we would actually have large pieces of slash or wood to weigh it, weigh it down because it would just be like this big hole that they could still get underneath. So we had like what, eight pieces of eight wood, pieces. large pieces of wood we'd have. To, so that added probably another 15 minutes to the chores, fascinatingly yeah. enough. Um, in fact, you know, maybe in your note, your links, your whatever, your show notes, if you wanted to, we have a good YouTube video that shows without audio, but it's just kind of like you can see us pulling those off every day to McKinley's yeah. point. It did add that time added That's, yeah and wait to the right like so wait to pull add additional the the time to lift and put back down every time so like i i never want to dissuade people like but understanding that flat land is where chickens go and not flat land makes a lot more time commitment so i feel like this is the good stuff <laughs> yes yeah. no I, I mean if you don't have flat land i recommend you don't do chickens like period yeah. to be honest and where we're at now is has been cultivated at some point yeah. and so, so it's pretty flat it's nice and, and flat. there's just such thick forage we're really fortunate with the way this field is right now it is so thick with clover that it and you have a 2500 pound structure that the combination of that weight that you just have enough compacted forage that it can kind of act as some of that padding where you do have holes and we still have to you know patch some stuff yeah. and talk about it later. yeah yeah so does that kind of help visualize a little bit what we got going on with the it, it definitely does i ask so much because we are in like the blue ridge mountains and we want to do yeah. sheep in rotations and you can imagine that has been nonsense so i i'm always like okay what little tricks did you do and you know then what do you do when you're in a whole different environment but that totally makes sense for i would say like a 10 degree angle right you probably couldn't fight it too much more than that what do you yeah. think well, I th yeah. One thing we haven't tried that we had debated on was running a larger, like, you know, quarter mile or eighth mile eight, or eighth mile of uh, poly wire, of, okay. sorry, poultry netting around okay. the perimeter. And so you just have to like move that every five days or something, which you see with a lot of chicken operations, later operations, you kind of, they can be free in the day, but still kind of protected. But then add um, the time commitment of picking up those netting sections and all that good stuff on time <laughs> yeah so and those just, are cumbersome those yeah are, the, we've used those before yeah so. and i assume you would have to let the chickens out in the morning put them back in at night because that poultry netting is insufficient for night pressure i would assume well we wouldn't even let them out we would just okay. have just that instead of doing skirts ah. we would probably just have the netting around the the units the, the tractors and that would do it but... did that help or not enough for you guys uh, we didn't end we up didn't, doing we that. Didn't end up, that. You was, gave up on that one? Okay. <laughs> that, that was the thought. But, you know, we okay. have a, we have a, the Argyle Acres, they're about a, an hour away from us. And 
you know, he, he raises turkeys and some chickens under some meat shaws and some open environments where he has narrow lanes of mm -hmm. poultry fed netting. And, you know, that seemed to, that seemed to work for him. So I, I think it could have worked. I think that's another okay. option. Yeah. I, I, and I think with that, I mean, we have pretty serious uh, predator birds around here. Um, nice. I, we, we would be considering if we're going to do open air to have a dog because yeah. otherwise you'll lose you're just going to lose animals, which is, which is part of it. You know, that's a piece, some piece you have to make with the whole thing in general. But and another piece of our context that we're with a dog is like, we're in a rural community, but like we have residents around us on every side that have domestic dogs that I think would just get murdered by a Pyrenees or something else. And so, but, and that's a whole fight with your neighbors that nobody wants to go down that road. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're, they're, not yet. Not until we don't like their dog. That's I'm just right. kidding. I mean, we're not talking about that. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's good. Another like, keep happy with your neighbors, understand your context around you and that dogs attract other dogs and all that good stuff. So yeah. In fact, one day early this year, <laughs> McKinley came out, oh, and so we had we when we had the birds in the south and tractors. I mean, you could tell the story better. Yeah, so I, I just showed up and doing. It was afternoon chores, just checking in on stuff, and a very large dog was inside of our Salatin tractor. It had jumped on top, and where the one of the sides is open. <laughs> And so like, it's not open, but it's uh, just got poultry netting on it and it broke through it and it, but it <laughs> didn't, it, it didn't eat a chicken. It didn't kill anything. It was just in there. It's like a like, doodle of some kind. It was some kind of met like a herding dog mixed with a doodle and it just, just wanted to be with them. It was really something else. I, I, cause I, I, I saw, I saw day. something in there. <laughs> I saw something in there and I was ready to bludgeon something. Go, go to war, but um, <laughs> Fortunately, it wasn't. I looked in there. It's like there's no dead chickens. I should just let this dog just out. Some very confused dog. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Anyway, I'm trying to remember what your other questions were. Sorry. Well, I was about to say let's go on to other things that are on the farm. Obviously, the the chickens are kind of the problematic animal due to predator pressure and you know small batch and all that good stuff. So tell me about some of the other enterprises that possibly have been a little easier and more impactful on the land. <laughs> yeah, I think. If it feels like the right pace is if you should never take on more than one enterprise in a year is my mind, like an additional enterprise. So we're in year two, we have two enterprises. We had two enterprises last year. Maybe that was a cheat year because it was small amounts, but so we have two enterprises right now. We have the, the birds and then we've got the cattle. And so our cattle, we had three head last year and we've really, we've grown our herd through breeding and through purchasing so we have uh, a variety of different uh, breeds of cattle. We have, um, so we've got the three pair from last year. Uh, two of those moms had cow had calves this year. Uh, we lost one, and then we bought. We're 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 kind of in this balance. We're like, do we want to be a genetics building ranch? Like, do we want to focus on phenotypes and other attributes of cattle that will help them be really good grazers and finishers on grass for us or are we going to be kind of salatin style which is we're just going to buy stalkers every year and raise them for a year and sell them out and that's what we're going to do you know and this, this is the business decision right now we're, we're leaning more towards genetic you know selection over time so we bought one cow and cat one pair that's a pharaoh cattle company breed black angus that's um known for being a better grass finisher 
and then we bought four three three we bought three from montana up in the sheridan montana 5l cattle company and they have um some red angus that are really nice low profile alleged grass finishers so we'll not even just the fact that they're grass finishers but these cattle don't hay in the winter time they have to forage they have to just graze through the winter or whatever is in those cold montanas so yeah and they and they don't they're we're, we've been real impressed with them they seem to not care about what you feed them so um again i'm we're telling you, I, we're like proud grandparents that are just showing our list of like we're, luckily we don't have like 200 cattle because we probably tell you about like each one like oh <laughs> they're so cute number baby, two we love two she's the no. cutest but anyway bottom no. line is we have 18 cattle right now we, we are 16 excuse me of our own uh that's all cows and calves combined and then we have um eight cows as well in our herd right now that we're doing custom grazing with. And I think this is a really, we should have done this last year candidly, but we didn't. Cause I think we just, we didn't know. We didn't know the context of the land, how well the forage would grow and how much we'd have for the winter and stockpile. But what we are doing is we are grazing a neighbor's cattle. So far we've been doing it for just over two months. And the thinking there is our, our other slogan last year was for sure we need more cows because we were not getting herd effect and not moving across the 40 acres that we had fast enough. And that creates problems in terms of like your recovery time and building um, a healthier soil system. And so, and keeping those plants in an active growth phase. So um, the custom grazing is a really great way to one, have a little bit of supplemental income. It's not a huge amount. We're kind of just charging conventional prices. In retrospect, I would encourage people if they're doing regenerative daily moves, on their cattle charge a premium like there's some serious um care we're taking to these animals we know immediately when they have red eye or you know foot rot or whatever else so um uh that's been really good for us because we have moved significantly faster through our pastures in a good way because of both increased herd but also this custom grazing i love uh, it let's go deep into that because that's the the grit right of grazing is such a finesse um and so when you guys started out, you did the the bomb bale grazing. Tell me a little bit about like from first getting that land to obviously now the expansion. Tell me about those growth cycles and kind of what was your immediate takebacks? How did you work through it? And what would you do better, of course? <laughs> yeah. So when we first started, um, a big decision making process we were dealing with was this drought. We received, uh, what was it? Like 48% of normal. And the previous years we had received like 70% of normal of typical winter. Um, so we were really nervous. That's, that's the reason we started with that small amount of cattle. Maybe just mentioned too, we flood irrigate on our land. And so we are dependent on those watersheds, the snowpack and the watersheds for what's coming off the mountain. If the water isn't high enough in the river, we can't get enough flow to actually even flood irrigate yeah sorry yeah no and so we're, we're very so we sh so the way the property works is we're bisected literally down the middle of the property by a creek which is very fortunate um because that allows us to strip graze um in a in a very controlled manner and uh where if you don't have water infrastructure in grazing you you can't uh do holistic plant grazing or adaptive multi-paddock grazing efficiently. Um, you just can't get your cows out to where they need to get to really utilize that forage and to get the right type of herd effect. So we're very lucky that way. Um, and then when it, and then, so in Utah, um, hay prices are extraordinarily expensive uh, compared to the Midwest and the East coast. 
Um, they say in the Midwest and the East Coast that they waste more hay than we can grow in a year. Um, so that was one, that's always been a big concern is how do we get away from hay, hay prices? How do we totally get out of that world? And we're still trying to experiment with that. We were very fortunate um, because we didn't have a lot of cattle. We could stockpile forage everywhere. And so we weren't really worried about that. We were able to graze until December 31st. Um, and then we started feeding. And then the cool thing that was really unique where we thought we were going to destroy, you know, this is because, because I grew up here, I grew up on a cattle ranch and they say, you don't start grazing until May 15th or even past the first week in June. <laughs> and so that means you're feeding cattle. If you're doing conventional grazing for six months of the year, That's crazy. which is not a profitable, even if hay prices are cheap, that's a long time to feed cows. So, um, we decided to, uh, to try to start grazing in April. Um, and the reason we were able to do that is because we left forage behind. We were always like, we grazed it once during that year and then it recovered and we didn't touch it until we came back that April. And the good thing about that is the, the warning is that you'll bloat your cows, which is real and happens every year around Utah it happens all the time because of the the new growth. Yeah. Grass. The new growth is extraordinarily high in nitrogen. People call it fog fever, or bloat or whatever. You, you put an animal that's not accustomed to that. They will blow themselves out. And you... So tell me a little bit about what generally, what time of year you did that first graze? What was your recovery time? Just generally what points in the year were yeah. you looking for that? So, so the place we got, we leased had been overgrazed for decades, right. centuries, yeah. maybe yeah. Half a century, <laughs> century and a half. So we decided to rest it um, an additional month longer. So we started grazing on June 26th of 2020, right? 2021. 2021. Yeah. So usually you start in May 15th. So that extra month of rest dramatically changed how the pasture reacted because it hadn't received that for a very, very long time. So, um, the th so we didn't have enough cows. We really needed to move faster because we wasted a lot of feed like legitimately waste, not just like, cause we, the growth cycle normally stops in the end of July if you don't graze it or cut it because it's just, the plant has fulfilled its purpose of going to seed. So um, the way we do it, um, we, we calculate, we are, we're a take half, leave half uh, operation. So we calculate our size of paddocks, what our need is, how much forage we have with a, we don't do it every day just so every just so you're clear but we kind of can eyeball it after a certain point but is this confessions i don't know <laughs> i think it's okay that people okay, don't move animals every space. day okay. like we're allowed well we move them every day we just don't measure every day we don't measure every day we Fair don't enough. Every day. <laughs> i just yeah. i think a large margin of imperfection i think is allowed when you're trying new things right <laughs> yeah so um we we have about a between 120 and 365 day rest period, essentially. That's how that goes. Um, we could do it shorter, but um, right now our philosophy, we're not trying to max out our production. And if you're looking to be a resilient producer, you can't ever max your production period. Because if something goes wrong, like a drought hits, you will lose your shirt or your soil, you'll compromise the soil of your, I mean, the thing that's my dad's been doing this for a long time up there. And during that drought, there was a little bit of negligence on a couple of places. And that 20 years of work goes out the window in one year. 
And so that's kind of the, the, where we're coming from is like, we know we're going to be in significant droughts in the future. Likely we'll be in, in a decade, we'll probably be three years of drought for every decade, maybe, maybe more. And I think that's, it's good. It's good for us. And I think I'm not trying to pat ourselves on the back, but it's important, not good. It's important to recognize the unique situation we're in as a ranch in that context, because it can become really easy when we have field days and people come on and they're like, whoa, look how much forage you still have. And why are these other ranchers looking like a freaking golf course right now? And it, it, it is that, that empathy for historical context and current context of someone's operation is so important because it, you just don't know why they've had to make the decisions they've made. And it's likely because, I mean, there, there's so many variables, like one, one interesting topic, I think over time for regenerative ranchers who have leases is that should you be paying for leased ground or should they be paying you? Because there's a, the, the more expensive your lease is, the more motivated you are to get your bang for your buck. And so you're going to overstock that land. And so it's just, so if, depending on what these leases are for these ranchers, they're, they're probably doing bad practices because in the short term, they think they're going to get higher yield or weight or whatever else. And anyway, it's, it's been a really big empathy building coming from a non-agricultural background and a, you know, ivory tower kind of view of why isn't everyone doing regenerative agriculture? You know, it, it, it just a lot of empathy and patience. I just, you know, whenever anyone who's listening to this or anyone who looks at your Instagram feed and sees all these amazing things, the last thing you should do is go and yell at a farmer or rancher who isn't doing these things. That's just not helpful dialogue. Anyway, that's a real, that's a tangent off of what you're yeah, talking about no. with cows, but <laughs> it's been it's been a serious learning curve that's i mean that's a big thing for us because a lot of people's i can't do that because you know they they were yielding yields were better in the past fertilizers too expensive to use now and so people are starting to have to destock and it's it's really hard and hay prices are just it's just in the west almost cattle ranching is not profitable period yeah. if you're in the commodity market and yeah. even if you're doing direct sales it's pretty brutal i mean you're you're to to feed a cow a steer or a heifer for two winters is 14 to 1800 dollars. period and so especially if you're doing it for six months probably much longer it's more it's it's probably three thousand dollars if you're doing that if you're feeding it for six months of the year so um anyway so going back to it um if you leave forage on the ground, that's going to turn brown. That's going to be carbon and all of the new growth that's really high in nitrite or nitrates um, can be balanced out. So the cow, as it's going in to get the green stuff because it wants it, it's also having to get a mouthful of brown and so, um, or high carbon. So that balances out their rumen. And then as their gut, it takes a cow about 10 to 14 days for its rumen to change over. Um, you won't experience bloat, at least. It, and again, it depends on your type of forage. If you're feeding on an alfalfa field, you need to avoid that at all costs or something like that. So um, there's a lot of depends and a lot of things that way. But essentially, you just have to make a chart of where you're going to go. Either it's best if you write it down. We haven't been writing it down, to be totally honest. Um, but if you have an idea of like, okay, this is where this is going to be our 
Cause, and you always want to cycle, you know, I never want to start at the same place. You never want to do the same rotation. You always want to start something somewhere else. Um, so you just kind of have to be like, okay, this is where our next year's April feed is going to come from. And what one thing we're really toying with that I think we're going to do for sure next year is um, we're going to do warm season cover crops after our first graze uh, to through the spring flush and then plant plants that have thick stems and stalks like corn, uh, uh, field corn, um, Southern Sudan, uh, yeah, Sudan, uh, sorghum sedan grass, sunflowers, sun hemp, and seed. Because the thing that's actually kind of interesting is that ranchers, at least in the past, like they'll force their cows um, to feed on thistle. And the re reason they can feed on thistle in the winter is that it's thick enough to withstand the snow loads that we get. We'll get three feet of standing snow almost every year here. Um, sometimes a lot more than that. Uh, it's much more. It used to be much more common. It's less common now. So um, we're trying to figure out how to eliminate hay completely out of our operation. And it's going to take a lot of careful planning. Um, we're, you know, we would prefer not to pay for seed for cover crop, but if we can say, hey, that's only going to cost $5,000 for 50 acres, say, and it's going to, but it's going to cost us $25,000 to feed our animals. It's, it's a no, it's a no brainer and it's healthier for your soil. It's, it's increasing your biodiversity. It's increasing the, uh, you know, the palatability of what the cows can eat. It's And so that changes their health. They may finish better. And so, yeah, that's kind of where we're at with uh, the cows at the moment. Um, but to be honest, if you want to farm or ranch part-time, cattle are the, really a, a good way to go, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, if you have access to land and you ha can have good water infrastructure, it's a 35 to, it depends on how much time. I mean, we find ourselves wanting to spend more time than just what it takes to move them. And so it's less than an hour a day. It's less than an hour. Sure. If you're, if you're in a hurry, you don't have to be there more than 45 minutes. Um, occasionally you'll find cows out. You got to get them back in and that's, you know, whatever, but that's, you can easily have a job and do a lot of cattle. I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Gordon Hazard. He was a veterinarian in Mississippi. And he had 1800 head and he was a full-time veterinarian <laughs> and he'd go do that. Uh, he didn't move them every day and you don't have to move them every day. You could do every three days. If you have enough land, you can really get creative about that stuff. So, yeah. yeah. Well, that's why I think it's so important to like allow that like movements every day are great. Well, movements three times a day are even better, but not sure. moving them at all because we can't do this because we can't fit it in our lifestyle is the worst case scenario. Right. So like being right, accepting yeah. of different ways around it. Um, so sure. give me kind of some high level, like obviously you're probably surrounded by conventional at some point. Tell me a little bit about like just kind of some of the benefits that you've seen for your work versus the other, particularly with the varying season, the unique climate, like what is, what is going right <laughs> about the experiment? Mm. So with the cattle operation, the recovery on the land is, is humbling and beautiful. Like it's, it's amazing. It's, we, we haven't been perfect documenters of like last season, this season necessarily, but there are areas that were bare. I think about like when we go over our culvert into the, the Southern pasture and it's like, that used to be pretty much bare. And now this year it's a mix of grasses and dandelions. So you can see the succession of plants like moving up 
the succession. And so it's, it's getting better. Or we walk through an area of meadow broom that's, you know, up to our chest and we're both over six feet tall. And so to have those kind of moments where you're just seeing pure coverage and then density, because we were here a year ago, like we're walking the same fields and we know what it felt like last year. And we can tell the difference of what it feels like this year. And it, that is, that is a really amazing like feeling to just know that that's happening. I always wish we were quantifying it even better. I would encourage anyone who's wanting to get in that is like over document. You, you can't over film or over photograph what you're doing. Um, well, and that's in such a short time too. That's one year. And we say regeneration takes, you know, a long time. So that's already just one year's impact of that. <laughs> and that's on the forage side. Ecologically, we're seeing still so it's so more it, birds. Yeah. We it, it's I I honestly I, I mean, unless you're in a very, very brittle environment, and we're in a fairly brittle environment, but we're on a we're in a riparian area. Regeneration ha it can happen much quicker than I think if you're it depends again on your context how much labor can you put into it how many times can you move your cows a day and all that type of situation but the ecological I mean we had some birds last year I mean it's it's a very diverse area we're very fortunate to be in the place we're at but um there were bird this year there's flocks of like hundreds of birds that just live with the cattle there's probably double the amount of sandhill cranes. We have fairly large uh, mule deer bucks living on the property. Um, I just saw two fawns the other day that were born on the property. I, I mean, it's it's dramatic, and the amount of forage is probably quadrupled, tripled easily compared to what they usually have this time of year. Yeah, this yeah. time of year, it's it's you're you're done. I mean, you're lucky to stick. 20 cows out there and if you just put them out there i mean they it, it's just it's i'd say those are probably the two key things just the yeah. ecological recovery is is huge i'd say the other thing though is that on the on the poultry side so we haven't processed any of our beef just to be really clear you know we're still in this growing our herd we anticipate 24 to 28 months or so for finishing our cattle <clears throat> oh 24 to 28 months old and so with our chicken though, you know, last year, 130 birds, that sells pretty quick to friends and family. When you get to a thousand ish plus birds, you're kind of like, how do we sell this stuff? The response from the community up here and the way they come to the farmer's market every week and you start having a repeat customer that says, give me a chicken. Like there's some kind of addict. You're like, this is amazing. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. like <laughs> they taste the difference. They know our values, the support we fell in the, fill in the community from uh, we have a group here called like Recycle Utah or Summit Land Conservancy or Park City Community Foundation. These groups, they are throwing us at radio conversations or into newspaper interviews or they want our story to be told. And to feel that camaraderie and community is just like that social context is just as important as the ecological for us. Yeah. Well, I, I love that you deviate into this because what I think was really like interesting and unique about you guys is obviously there's not. There, there's some generational farming. There's some people who came from outside, but you're three friends farming together on leased land. Like, tell me about that dynamic and how it kind of benefits. Because it's usually like one farmer, one couple that is just stressed out and ripping their hair out, trying to do everything. Tell me a little bit about your dynamic and how you guys are making it work. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, and lots it, of couples therapies, triples therapies. That's right, <laughs> triples. Um, but uh, it, 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 I mean, it's it's very 
it works really well for us. Um, you know, when, whenever somebody needs relief, usually there's somebody to take the relief. Um, we can go on vacation, which is pretty unusual. That's not like, a farming thing. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, there, there's certain days where it's like, Hey, you gotta be, we both have to be here or it's not, this isn't going to work. Um, and that's normally processing days. Uh, that's working cattle, um, building, dumb schooners. building schooners. <laughs> yeah. There, there's a certain, there's, there, it's mostly infrastructure and then harvesting is really like the biggest part of it. And to me, when you work cattle, that's kind of a form of harvesting because they've kind of gotten to the point where you either got a castrate or a working um, day or work. Yeah. It's, it, but th that for us, that's only once a year or for others, it's, that's many times. Um, but it, like for me, I mean, I live up here. So M Mitch takes as much on as I do though. Uh, so Mitch is really a master marketer and like overall high level strategy kind of a guy. And so I kind of defer to him on a lot of that. Um, and so we, that's the thing is we are each allowed to be self-expressed and like show and gain honest achievement for ourselves in whatever we're good at. We have the time to do it. We're not just like totally swamped with, I got to move chickens or I got to go move cows or whatever it is. And that's the only thing you can focus on is the labor side. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, if <clears throat> like for us, we don't like neither one of us likes doing the books on anything so so james james gets to do that <laughs> james gets to do that he's a, you know he's a, an accountant anyway so um and when mitch or i can't show up he'll fill in um there's certain times where that's happened so i mean i left january for a month and you can't do that as rancher um and you know that, well, that you, will like you could in history in a conventional you know but you could <laughs> well we're in regenerative where everything is better that's right like <laughs> you no you can't you can't do that like i mean and you know and that may have to shift as time goes on as we get more enterprises and you know we don't have employees yet we're planning on getting employees in the future for sure because that's the only way you can be regenerative at scale yeah. and then you're actually building community and all that kind of stuff but for me that's I could, we couldn't be doing this without each other. We're totally interdependent yeah. on each other to make this work. And, and that's a funny thing. It's kind of interesting. If you mirror that to ecology or just the environment in general, everything is interdependent. And to, if there wasn't multiple of, a, if it was just me doing this, it's not, and I were to die, it's not regenerative. That's the end, and, right? <laughs> that's that's it, and that, the end of it. And that the, the hope is to, whether through the employees we hire or whatever that, or our children that they come and take it yeah. from us because that's the only way it's going to work. Cause it, what we're trying to do is, you know, hopefully 500 years from now, the same operation is running and maybe a larger scale or there's more diversity to it. So that's kind of the whole thing that we're trying to, to create. And without each other, we couldn't do it. That's the honest truth. One one thing we've talked about, we actually heard at a farmer's market last week in this agricultural economist, he's like 60 years old, but the, one of the first questions he asks us, he says, do you pay yourself? And he said, yeah, no, not right now. And so <laughs> it's a really good push because I can't remember who said this. Someone probably did, but if not, I did, is, uh, is um, that, you know, it's not actually a business unless you can pay for at least two employees. Yeah. And so- we're trying to get to that, to that state right now. We're not there yet, 
but um we've talked a lot about you know mckinley is up here the most as far as like boots on the ground operations of the ranch i'm probably spending equal amount of time but on the website stuff and back here as well (laughs) and so and i you know cumulatively i have about an hour and a half of driving every day 40 minutes each way so um but uh, so the the point is is when you create a partnership whether it's two people three people whatever it is you have to kind of define what equality looks like or equity looks like in that ownership structure and i would say that like last year it felt more like a hobby and this year it's definitely stressed to the limits of like this is a business there is greater financial risk here and there's opportunity but we have to invest our time to make that financial opportunity happen and it's um i think it's important you need to have open dialogue between each other to like say what is working what isn't working you can call this like companion inventory or like partnership inventory or like uh you know 360 feedback kind of peer reviews but you need to be able to have that kind of open space because um uh, you know, I think, I think we're trying to figure that out this year. Like this is a, str- a, a stressful year and how we each showed up, we had different amounts of time in different ways. Did that feel fair? That's right. the, that's a, that's a big question we're trying to figure out. So yeah, ag's, ag's an interesting business because infrastructure is, is expensive, but it's all, if you're going to do it this way, it's all labor yeah. and that is not what the American economy has been based off of for a long time, at least for, for quite, at least from what I'm aware of, of like, no, your body actually matters more than the money that you can give to the operation. Right. Which is, which is kind of, I mean, it's a throwback for sure back to a different time period, but it's a, and then, you know, half our time is probably spent trying to figure out how to do sales. (laughs) <laughs> too. I mean, that's a, I mean, we're trying to build out our sales funnels and that's educating people on what we're even doing. Well, yeah. That's why I think it's so interesting that like, you know, so somebody's supposed to be the farmer to learn how to be the best regenerative farmer, grow out the best and do everything. Well, that can be a full-time job plus tenfold. And then I need to go out and market directly to people. So I don't lose my margin. I think your system of having multiple people who can dedicate their enthusiasm to places, not I don't want to do the books, but the books need to be done or I'm not going to know my margins. It helps to have somebody who is very passionate in each of those zones without like forcing you to do a topic that you just hate compounded on top of a very long day's work. So I love this split. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. You know, like I, we're, we're very aware of each other's schedules and, you know, with McKinley and in, in real estate, there's just days where maybe he's got to go do like four showings from 10 to four or something. I'm like, Hey dude, I'm like, I'll take care of the cattle and I'll do the move. Usually in like the early afternoon, but sometimes McKinley be like, no dude, like I need to move the cattle because like, that's like, that's, that's the best part of your day. You know, like, and it is, it's, it's really rewarding that way when you can, you don't, it, it's stressful and it's time consuming, but end of the day if you can just sit on a bar of the schooner and just watch these dumb birds catch a grasshopper and chase each other there's something just simple <laughs> yeah. and great about that yeah there's something magical about it for sure it's weird yeah, it's i mean yeah it, it, it just reminds you what it's all about really doing just animals expressing themselves like one of the purest forms of expression i think there is yeah yeah 
Well, I love that. And I love that you guys have found a way to strategize and have a system integrated in a, not a real way of living, but a non 100% farming lifestyle. This can work with your jobs and it's not a second burden. It's a second enjoyment. Like, because sometimes when we're like, oh, I take on a second job and I'm bartending through the night because I need more money and I'm killing myself. Well, wouldn't it be also pretty enjoyable to be farming and be out improving the land and enjoying animals. So I think you guys have created a very like unique system that really offers a lot of potential to people that maybe feel isolated. Like I want to farm, but I don't have the resources. Well, maybe they just haven't met their friends yet that are about to be That's right. the next three Springs, you know, farm and the, you know, going after yeah. it. <laughs> you know, one thing we're trying to figure out though, is that, you know, part of our kind of the way we think about our mission, I, we honestly need a better, more clear mission. But at some point, it's like, how can we create thriving agricultural communities through our practices that are both economically and ecologically sustainable? And so we hope that you can make an honest wage and life out of ranching. And so we want to be as open with our books as possible now and in five years from now that we can say, look, this five years this in five years of starting this ranch we have been able to be able to employ you know have a four hundred thousand dollars of profitability to support x number of people or whatever it is um we believe that's possible we think it's vital so mckinley made a comment at the beginning about where we live so where we ranch camas valley is 20 minutes away from park city and especially with COVID, everyone said the billionaires pushed out the millionaires, like by far. And so, um, so now all those millionaires, just quote unquote, that idea of that wealth has poured into this valley, which is not a bad thing. I actually love the, the way the community dynamic works. I think it's healthy right now. Where it could become unhealthy is that you have the largest transfer of wealth in the next 10 years, primarily through real estate. And if trusts and families are inheriting ranches and farms that are in the red there's an easy decision they have to make which is do we keep this operation or do we sell it and there are plenty of developers knocking on the door and in the ears of our legislators that are happy to make development happen i'm not anti-development but i am anti-non-holistic development i'll say if they are not looking at the whole and they are thinking about building out a community then we're not in a place to do that kind of crap anymore. Like that, that stuff needs to stop because Utah used to focus so much on, we need to bring all this business to our economy. And like, we are a fine economy. We're diversified. Stop telling people to come here. You're welcome if you want. We don't, we're not desperate for people. Like we're fine. Stop thinking that because now we're going to just go build more freaking neighborhoods and desertify the Camas Valley that is part of our small water cycle that builds the snowpack for all of our ski resorts. And you've seen that happen in so many other places in the country. Yeah. Like, let's not go there. <laughs> yeah, I know. This is going to a dark place. Let's pull back out to the light. <laughs> that that is that, we, we know how that story goes. We don't want yeah, that. <laughs> but the light of it is that, you know, we are doing a three-year study through our extension uh, university, Utah State, and we have funding from Park City Community Foundation. And we're doing ecological monitoring on our land as well as two other ranches to be able to say what is our carbon sequestration what is our other ecological impacts happening and carbon credits are a really touchy area carbon offsetting and all that stuff but if you can scientifically through through what we're doing show carbon sequestration 
that's a nice incentive. That's a nice carrot for how to influence ranchers to change. And so we're trying to figure out as the new kids on the block, how to like, you know, influence other ranchers in the community to want to take on these practices and not make them feel forced or shamed into doing it. But, you know, we're trying to be a demonstration ranch and we open our farm, we open our books, we'll do whatever we can to help, help that, help that movement. I love that. Uh, on that note, do you have any last advice for people who are either beginning, starting, excited about this space? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, just have patience and uh, really just keep keep going. I, I mean, it, it, it's for me. If uh, we need more people, we need more. We need more people. I mean, it's that's the labor and the awareness and the education or the passion for it to get the education, to know how to do this is lacking. Um, and if we don't do it, I mean, our, our food, everybody, I mean, the audience in the regenerative food world knows that uh, the world's food system is pretty, pretty bad. And so just keep going. It's have, have resilience. Cause it can be hard. It's not a, it's not for the faint of heart. And, um, and if you, you know, if, if you have land and you care about this, but you can't be a farmer, find someone to manage it and help them do it because it's so hard to get land. So if anybody hears that be with people who care about the land, respect them and help them. Don't, jump down their throats about how they need to be paying you a high rent or anything like that, because that's, you're hardly receiving any money for the, I mean, ag leases are nothing anyway. So help people who care about the land. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you're just getting started, I would say um, it's okay to be the new kid on the block and it is a very welcoming community. You will have critics like step into the arena and just start you will find you know my sister told me this my whole life like those who those who mind don't matter and those who matter don't mind or don't care or whatever you know like it's we have made cold calls and cold dms to random ranchers and farmers <laughs> that we thought there's no way they're going to talk to us they're too busy and they're like come on over and they spend three hours with us and like that's that like community and willingness to like open your arms and your mind and your time to uh, to someone new like we can't think enough like argyle acres bill white ranches um i think uh you know craig mcknight like there's these people that just have helped us out so much lloyd marchant like these guys and women have been so influential to us just just believe that you can create a community out there and that there's a community already out there that will help you and support you and just step into the arena. We have already seen, I think, two or three different people come onto our farms or our ranch that weren't rent farmers yet. And since then, they've started. And like that is the most like amazing thing. And we want them to be as successful as possible. If you have an abundance mindset and realize how important we are into in, in a stable civilization you'll want to be here that was a long last word but 
That's a good right. last word. But I, I love it. The the most important one that it, it's not competition, it's camaraderie. And the, you know, mm-hmm. this is not a space for criticism, this is a space to, you know, create abundance. So I love it. <laughs> the demand is endless. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's it, it, for this kind of product, it really is. I love it, guys. Well, thank you so much. We will drop links to your website, your Instagram. You guys are constantly sharing good stuff. So everybody go follow them. You will not be disappointed. I appreciate it so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it.